Who the bloody hell's that? Come on, H. Oh, Anthony, how are we? I'm really well, how are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do, thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little, No, it'll be fine, yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 113 of the Corona Diaries. Ooh, 113. And that's a spooky coincidence. Because Do you know, what's amazing about this podcast, Anthony, is that I'm in room 113 of a hotel in Montreal, um, of the Embassy Suites, as they call them, um, which are not like, cigarettes you know those sweet cigarettes you had they could be embassy sweets couldn't they um probably nobody outside the uk will get that and then half of the people in the uk won't get it okay slip a few dollars to the person on the desk and find out if they get any complaints on saturday morning from room 113 (laughs) because i think it might well happen yeah yeah, I'm going to have to change my name as well, of course, because they'll ask for me, yeah. won't they? Uh, so, uh, Victor Vivian Manley, I'll be... No, I won't, because I've just broadcast that as well. I'll be one that I haven't broadcast. <laughs> right. I also love the fact when you did the Embassy Suite cigarette <laughs> thing, you actually did an impression of a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> as if anybody could see you. Which which was lovely. Are, are you jet lagged by any um, chance? Not as bad as usual, to be honest. Uh, although it's it's quite normal to feel like you've got away with it on 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 day two. You know, when you wake up and you think, "Oh, I've done very well. It's I managed to sleep till half past six, and I wasn't awake after night, and I feel all right." And you think, "Cracked it," and then day three. You know, or mm. night two, you lie awake all night, wake up at half past one, half past two, quarter to three, quarter past three, twenty past three, four o'clock. You get out, you get up about five out of sheer desperation mm. and feel like hell for the rest of the week. I've been known to iron at like five in the morning, having never, when I used to stay away, I would never iron anything. You get your stuff, you take it out of the suitcase, it is what it is. Yeah. And in America, when I'm awake at five, I've been known to iron. Right, because there's nothing on the telly. Nothing else to do. Breakfast Pitch room's bright. still shut. All the yeah. caps are shut. They've closed the local Starbucks here that, that was only a short walk away, so that's caused me terrible heartache. Um because the the coffee that you get free in North America and hotels is oh, it's horrible. just yuck, yucko. Yeah, it is. They leave it in a jug, don't they, stewing. Oh, it's sludge. And it's not even nice when it's fresh. And then once no. it's stewed a bit, it's really hideous. Um, so, yeah, you you end up finding Starbucks as soon as possible. And, the, and there's one just, or there was one, just 100 metres away from this hotel and... So off in I, the direction you're just pointing, off I went. Yes, in that direction, 
And uh, was it there? No. It was boarded up and it's gone. So then I thought, oh, shit, I better, I better get my phone out and do the find the nearest Starbucks. So I did that only to discover that for whatever reason the mobile data isn't working. So it wouldn't tell me, which left me with the only option of actually speaking to people on the street, um, which I eventually did. <laughs> and they went, sure, five blocks. Oh, five blocks, that's a lot, isn't it? So... Uh, I've been walking about... At the thick all, end of a mile. I've been walking about all morning. But I found a Starbucks in the end and had uh, a coffee and a chai latte, came back, and uh, what happened then? Oh, I had an omelette, and uh, and now I'm back in my room, and as, as soon as um, I've done this, I'll probably beat off to the hairdressers. Oh, that's the life. Yeah. That's the life of a singer. That's life you live. Yeah, it's a sort of singer's thing. You got to do it. So, quick question then, while we're still on jet lag. Um, first night, you get there. First night, obviously, you try and stay up as late as you possibly can, uh, <laughs> and then and then and then hit hit the bed. Do you do that thing where you wake up with a start, thinking like you've slept eight hours, and actually it's three quarters of an hour after you went to sleep? Well, it was made slightly more more lumpy bumpy uh, last night by the fact that it's Lynetta's birthday today, and I wanted to catch her to wish her happy birthday before she did the school run, which was at seven fifteen, which of course was at two fifteen here. So I set my alarm for quarter past two, um, stayed up as late as I could, which was about eleven. Um, which was actually made easier by a man from the fan club who, who brought us to the hotel from the airport and got completely lost. So we, we actually arrived at the hotel about 40 minutes later than we otherwise would have done. Um, and although I didn't really thank him for it, he did us a favour um, because it meant I stayed up a bit later, whether I liked it yeah. or not. So by the time I'd got my technology out of the case and, you know, like you do... Plugged your charges in. This is the modern world, isn't it? First thing you do, plug plug, plug your charges in, find out what the Wi-Fi code is, find out why the Wi-Fi isn't working, um, you know, and all of that. You go through all that rigmarole, don't you? Um, and then you and then you go, okay, now I can get ready for bed. So then I got ready for bed, and um, and and set my alarm for quarter past two. So I was in a deep sleep when the alarm went off, uh, not you know, and not knowing what time it was when it went off, or why it was going off, or where I was on Earth. So you, you, there's that brief moment where you try and work out where you went to bed and why. Um, and uh, and then I said, I wished Lynette a happy birthday, and I went back to sleep. And then I kind of went through till about six. So I did quite well, but as I, yeah, did very as well. I say, t- tonight will be the one. It always is. Yeah, yeah it's going to crucify you tonight. Um, Only the jet lag to... know the way I feel tonight. That's that's from Montreal, isn't it? The song about this hotel, actually. You know, Leonard Cohen on TV and the, down in the sports by the ice hockey never ends. And it doesn't. And it's still on now. Um they like a bit of ice hockey here. <laughs> so on to other stuff, quick. Yes, yes. Just briefly, little, little little bits of housekeeping. Mm. 
Am I right in saying the dates for Oxford have gone out? Not the dates, sorry, the tickets are on sale. Yes. Yes, they went They went on sale uh, a couple of days ago. So if you fancy um, the Christmas the Christmas gig in Oxford, it's on sale. Don't faff about. It usually sells out you, during, you know, during the summer, if not during the first couple of weeks. So... Um, Get your get it here, get it get it here. Get, get it. Well, it's fresh. Well, get it. Get it there. Get it there in December. Don't get it. Pay here. for it here. Pay for it now. <laughs> Pay for it. Get it later. Pay for it now, and see if I turn up. Exactly. Yeah. It's, the, <laughs> it's the complete opposite of, you know, get it now and pay for it later. It's pay for it now. Pay for it now, <laughs> and you might get it later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fine, I'll get later. Yeah. The, the other thing, um, we had a bit of feedback on the last episode. Mm. Uh, we've had quite a lot of feedback on the last episode, particularly as it got quite philosophical in parts. Mm. Um, but this isn't the feedback. I'm, I'm not going to go to the, the philosophical feedback. I'm going to go to a bit of feedback from James Levy, um, who's, who's you know given us a nice, succinct paragraph of all the bits we got wrong, which is, which is always handy. Um, so a couple of bits of interest. John Collins' book, Separated Out Redux version, mm-hmm. covers up to sounds that can't be made. So I'm going to have to get hold of a copy of that. I didn't realise that it went that far. Yeah, I should probably get hold of a copy of that and find out what I've done. Yeah, or what you said. <laughs> what I said I'd done. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try and extrapolate from that to what I'd actually done. We, we perhaps, between the two of us, ought to do a bit of cross-checking. Yes. Uh, for the purposes of, um, well... For the, for the new experience of accuracy. Yes. Give it a go. Yes. Um, plus there is The Making of Happiness is the Road CD, which has liner notes about the recording of the album. We perhaps need to get hold of a copy of that as well. Well, I don't know why we're turning up at all in that case. I mean, it's all out there already, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Just send everybody a copy and have a few weeks <laughs> so off. You can, you can read this. You can watch this, listen to this. and yeah. uh, and Or... Or, or you can or, you can hear some kind of vague, complete opposite from the horse's mouth. Yeah. Yes, from any number of hotel rooms in Montreal, <laughs> and any number of guests. You can hear um, H going. Really? Well, I don't remember that. <laughs> in fact, if I if we clip that out, we could just paste that into everything that's been said in the past. Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Did I say that? Yeah, yeah I'm sorry that that's not ringing any bells at all. Yeah, that no. kind of thing. Yeah. I've got that as a ringtone. <laughs> um, the Happiness Sessions were the first album that might change the way the band were writing and recording. You're waiting for this? Yeah. He encouraged the band to jam for an hour or so before rehearsing for tours and the conventions, etc. Mm. That, does that ring a bell? It does. It does. And whether that was Michael encouraged it or whether it was some comment that somebody made because, because I mean for years someone has always said there's a couple of things that have been said over the years ever since I joined the band Pete at some point during the process of writing an album says we should have a blackboard and everybody goes why and he goes well then we could write things on it and we go okay but and I think when we did <laughs> Holidays in Eden we sent we sent one of the crew out for a blackboard and they brought a big blackboard. Um, and, of course, I think people just 
drew Eddie's graffiti on it. Uh, it <laughs> it's got Willie's on it, hasn't it? It's probably got, I yeah. don't know what it's got, but it, 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 I'm not sure it served much of a purpose. And then, and then even to this day, people occasionally say, if we had a blackboard and everybody kind of looks blankly at him as if to say, well, well how would that help? So that's one of the things that gets said. And then the other thing that gets said from time to time and has done over the years repeatedly is is somebody like Rothers or, or, or Mark will say, we should jam at the sound... Ch- or Pete, we should jam at the sound checks. Think of all the good stuff we'd get if we jammed at the sound checks. And then everybody nods and goes, yes, let's do that. And then, of course, we never do and never have. Um... And the only thing that happens at sound checks occasionally is that Ian and Pete will enjoy themselves and there'll be some kind of bass drum frenzy thing that goes on that wastes about 20 minutes while everybody else is waiting to sound check. Um, you know, and I'll just keep going. I'll just keep wandering up to the stage going, oh, they're having a good time and I'll go back down, back down and make another cup of tea or something. Um and that that that's another thing that keeps coming up. Why don't we jam at sound checks? Why don't we jam before this, and then we'll do that? And and everybody goes yes, not sagely, and, it, and then it never happens. Um, but I think I think that must have been one of those times that one of the band had said that, and Mike had actually said, "Well, yes, but why don't you actually do it?" And um, I think we did actually do it. We, 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 we jammed for 20 minutes at the beginning of every rehearsal day. And because what was good about that was because we weren't expecting to write anything, things happened. It's mm. a funny old mind game, all of it, because the more, the more you feel like you're supposed to be writing... The, the kind of less inclined you are and, and and what comes out is generally a bit forced and pressurised. Um, the reason people get into bands is because they don't want to do their own work. Or, what you know, the reason I learned to play the piano was because I didn't really want to do my physics homework and I'd find anything rather than do that because that's what I had to do. So I'd play the piano to avoid it. And I think most people who are in bands have, have got into bands to avoid doing what they really should have been doing. And as soon as being in a band becomes what you should really be doing, you'll almost do anything to avoid being in a band because that's your psych- do you know what? psychological setup, you know. I was just about to say, was the whole thing about trying to write when you're sound checking at a gig just to save you having to go into racket on a particular day? Well, it, it was to, it was to fool yourself into um, you know it not mattering. I think if you do, if, if it doesn't matter, you, we've found over the years you're more you're actually more likely to to come up with something interesting mm. when you're just faffing about for the joy of it rather than thinking, oh, God, we've got to write now, we've got to write now, uh, um, what should we do, what should we do, you know, what, oh, I need, I, need, I need to sprout forth with something amazing. Um, I can't do that. I, do, I, don't, I don't think many people can do that. If you can do that, then you're really lucky. If you just turn it on like turning on a tap, uh, maybe Ed Sheeran can. He seems to. And Ed Sheeran and Chris Martin just seem to go, Let's write an album. Go. Oh, finished. 
you know, and mm. whereas we're like, let's write an album, uh, run away. So that's the difference for me. You've gone quiet then. Oh, did you nod off? Have you got jet lag? I just lost you, lost you briefly then. Who'd lost me? You lost... I lost you briefly then. Did you? Mm. What? Me talking? Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, we... Yeah, you went a bit Dalek-y and you went... You might have to do a bit of a, a, bit, bit of a sneaky edit there. Well, I'm recording it at this end and it's still going, so... Yeah. I think... Oh, we'll see, see, see what happens I when we put it together. you just never got it at your end. But we are on never separate... Never got it at my end. Separate halves of the planet, so we're, we're doing quite well that any of this is working at all, really. Yeah, we are doing quite well. I mean, it's pretty um, seamless. What James... What James went on to say was, yeah. um, so uh, whatever is wrong with you apparently came out of one of those. Oh, he didn't just went on, go on to say whatever is wrong with you. <laughs> no, no. I don't think he did. No. Sorry, I'd say that again. So no. He said whatever is wrong with you. Yeah, James came out of one of those little pre, you know, going into rehearse for a convention things, whatever is wrong with you came out of one of those. Right. Well, I can't remember that at all, but it may well be true no. if he's read it in a book. It's quite possibly been, been, been the case. I have no idea how we wrote whatever is wrong with you. Uh, we need to talk about the way you've been behaving. It was a song about Lynetta, actually. A uh, song about Lynetta and how, you know, strange she is in a good way. Mm. Um, and her ex... Because clearly of the two of you, it'd have to be about Lynetta, wouldn't it? <laughs> She's, uh... Couldn't possibly the other way round. <laughs> Well, a lot of the things in the verses that probably don't make much sense, you know, we need to talk about the scissors and the silver foil and, the, you know, the policeman down the hall. Well, her ex-boyfriend was a policeman. So, um, you know, her, the, the one before me was actually a policeman and um, she's got this thing about any kind of metal on tinfoil makes her go mental. Uh, she can't cope with it at all. So if you get food in one of those tin foil tubs and somebody puts a fork in it, she just runs off screaming. Um, so she's got a few sort of oddnesses which are which you know are quite charming. Uh, and so a lot a lot of that song was about Lynetta and, her, and how she was a bit strange, but but how that was that suited me down to the ground really that. That you know, whatever's wrong with you is just right for me. Um, is what I was trying to say. So uh, that that was that was purely for her. In fact, um, someone left a message on my guest book, which I think is gone now because I think the moderator removed it because it wasn't very nice. Um, but they did have a point, and they didn't leave an email address so that I could write back and 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 comment. Um, but it was, I think it must have been a girl because she was saying that I often, I often wax lyrical about how much I respect my ex-wife and, and, you know, when I'm asked about guilt and whatnot, I, I, I say that I regret all of, all of that and I talk about, I talk about that and I very rarely make any kind of open declarations of love to Lynetta. Well, I'm here to tell you that I adore her and um, she's a wonderful woman and stick it up your arse, whoever you are. And um, 
And it's her birthday, so it needs to be said. Um, but the reason perhaps Lynetta doesn't get such a lot of good press is because the diaries are, are in another, you know, that I'm reading out are in another period of my life. And so people tend to ask questions about how I felt back then, you know, and they tend to react to that. Um, so in a sense, uh, you, you could be forgiven for having, you know, for thinking that I, I live in the past. But that I don't at all. I'm, I'm very in the now. Um, but I just happen to be reading out a diary that, that is from another time. And occasionally people ask me about that, and so I answer it. Um, mm. So when you ask me about guilt, I can add to my list of guilty things the fact that I haven't been nice enough to Lynetta across, across the, <laughs> these podcasts. <laughs> feel very guilty about that. So whoever you are, MM, if you're gonna if 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 you're gonna give me a hard time, at least have the balls to leave your email address so that I can come looking for you. Just a small aside from that. <laughs> just a small aside from that, because it's the way my, my 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 mind works. Does that mean if if you if you were doing that thing that couples do, where you're not very happy with each other for a period of time, because it, it happens in relationships, you have a day where you just can't be bothered with each other, or whatever you. <laughs> Do, do you do you tend to order in a takeaway then? Why? Because then you've got the the foil container to hand. <laughs> Our revenge takeaways. Um, no, a revenge takeaway. No, I'm not like that. No, a revenge biryani. The other thing Lynetta hates, absolutely hates, is anyone putting their finger in their own belly button. That completely freaks her. Alison hates well, that. Well, and I can basically do it. I, if I need revenge, I can, I can always have a good old fiddle about in my belly button and that, that will just send her off screaming. Um, so that's the, And that's cheaper than a takeaway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Alison's, Alison's got, exactly got, the same. I think we've had this conversation before, you know. In fact, I've got a flashback of being in, the, in that hotel in St Pancras. I think we might have been at a bar. Oh in yes, that hotel, we might have had that conversation. Talking then. about the belly button yeah. fixation. I think we did. Mm. I think we did because Alison can't stand anybody touching her belly button either. <laughs> no, neither can Lynetta. In fact, she's quite comfortable <laughs> with gunshot wounds and any amount, <laughs> any amount of blood and gore and horror. Because she used to work in uh, in A and E in the in the you know. In the, Behind the crash doors where the ambulances used to come in with the motorway crash victims, God knows what, in uh, Copenhagen General Hospital. And she's got no problem with an arm hanging off or somebody's insides dangling out of a neck on a stretcher. Fine. But you even talk about having a good scratch at your navel and she just changes colour and falls over. It's very strange. <laughs> She told me this story once. And I, did I tell you? I've probably said this before about the man who cut his scrotum off with a pair of nail scissors. Did I tell you that? Because it. I, you, need, you see, that would have struck home, I think. Has that rung a bell or not? No. She said there was a guy. No, and I think it would have there done. There was a guy, and he wasn't, you know, he, he was a, a bit of a. I think he, it, they were all ploys to get more morphine. Um, and he used to abuse himself, so they'd give him morphine. And uh, 
He set to one day with a pair of nail scissors and cut round his scrotum and cut his scrotum off. And uh, the, I've kind of become a little bit immune to, to, to that story because it sat with me so long. But when she first told me, I very nearly fainted. I thought, oh, my God, can you imagine? And it's not just something in a movie. It's something that, you know, she actually <laughs> witnessed. Um, so, yeah, I'm a lot more squeamish than Lynetta is, apart from the belly button. Yes. Right. Okay. You see, that's something we've learned about the now. Um, <laughs> whether, whether we wanted to or not. I'm going to have to finish. I'm going to have to bring us back to James's paragraph. Sorry, James. This is only supposed Where were you? To, only, well, this is only supposed to be the start. We've nearly finished. Um, <laughs> apparently, James also adds, mm-hmm. if you want to pass comment on this, yeah. it was the first album where the jams were recorded straight to multi-track, which allowed some of the initial jams to appear on the album with only a couple of changes. So he's citing liquidity as one, and then we talked about one the other day, which was uh, Happiness is the Road, which we did talk about, and I, where, where I thought the vocal sounded like a jam vocal. Right. And, and he confirms that. So, again, at some point in time, somebody said it. I think that's true up to a point, but I I do remember some of the weird little jams that that even ended up on Afraid of Sunlight, that icon and um, the past is a terrible place to live. Um, past is a terrible place to live. Um, that doesn't mean they didn't appear. It's just that these were multi-tracked, so I guess it would make it easier. Yeah, I think they were multi-tracked, though, those, right, those okay. ones. Um, but it was probably just things that Dave caught while we were goofing about working on the record uh, and then yeah. decided he would use, whereas I suppose it's true that, that happiness was probably the point at which we ceased the process of um, when we were writing, when we were jamming to write, that always used to go straight to stereo and we used to use mini discs and whatnot. Um, and, and that probably was the point where the process changed and all of the writing jams were multi-tracked. And that was because it was, that it was sort of possible. It was much, much cheaper to keep multi-tracks running once you're working in um, Pro Tools um, because it's all going onto hard drives. And it still gets expensive filling them, filling them up and moving on to a new one. But in the old days, Ampex 2-inch tape cost a bloody fortune. Yeah, it did. Um, it's really expensive. And Megan told us that you too used to jam to multi-track. And he said there were just rooms upon rooms upon rooms full of U2 um, two-inch multi-tracks that no one's ever heard of them of them jamming over the years. But wow. I, I guess they could afford it. But it gets very expensive when you're when you're jamming to two-inch tape because each one of those reels costs I don't know about nine hundred quid or something. And they last, yeah. they last for 15 minutes. So if you're jamming all day, it's going to get very, very dear. Uh, and, of course, you've got to keep yeah, because, stopping and changing know, tapes and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, because they weren't, they weren't designed for continuous record, were they? I mean, they were designed to get a couple of tracks on because you'd keep 
overlaying and overlaying and overlaying. But when you're jamming, you're not doing that, are you? No, no. And you, you, you it's all going and it's all, it's all software and hard drives these days. So mm. it's a lot easier than it used to be to uh, to just keep things running, to catalogue things, you know, to put little markers in if anything interesting happens. I think that's what Mike does when we're jamming. If if he if he hears something interesting, he can just he can just put a, a marker uh, so that when he returns to listen back, he can he can look for where the markers are and go. Oh, I'll go there because something interesting must have happened and I'll have a listen to that. So I don't think he has to listen through to everything we do because he's made a, just, he's made a little note where anything that might have even the slightest potential yeah. it, it, it can be found again. Yeah, he's made that QC judgment on the fly, hasn't he? Yeah, and the, to be fair, they're usually pretty obvious. You're either thinking, this is a lot of shit, or you're thinking, oh, hang on a minute. So you, <laughs> course, it, to, to man, finish James's one man's shit is another person's. Ooh, hang on a minute, that's the trouble. You, you, well, you indeed, sort that out. Yes, one man's squeamish is another man's dissected scrotum. <laughs> um, so. Uh, the, James finishes by saying, "This training is my life." Had a version during the Marble sessions, right? Well, which had a Trevor Horn stroke, Frankie goes to Hollywood vibe. Did it? Gosh. Mm. Well, <laughs> I love it. I love it when you react like that. Really, <laughs> sounds like the kind of band I'd, I'd like to join. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you should perhaps try. <laughs> try harder. I don't remember any of that. And then, t- and then, no, no. Well, well, we'll see what some people say for next week. And then to bring the tone down to finish, he says, you could have a naked Marillion tribute band called Ma Willion. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we now all know where what well, we we now James, we know James's level now. Right. Don't we? Some of you could uh, some of them could be girls with strap-ons. Well, indeed, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> I think that's how it should be. Should we? On that note, should we go to Belfast? <laughs> Straight up the stars there. Uh, yes, yes. Let's let's go to Belfast. That was a day. Let's go to Belfast. That was a day. Indeed. I'm looking forward to the accents. I'm really, really, genuinely looking forward to this one. I won't do much. I think you should record it at three in the morning. You shouldn't mess with the Irish. You really shouldn't. I'm not. Not that part of the world, anyway. Uh, I watched Belfast on the plane coming over. Great movie. The, The Kenneth Branagh. Have you seen it? I haven't seen oh, it. Really good. I haven't seen it. Beautifully, beautifully shot. And the, uh, the 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 kid who plays the kid, the boy, uh, is just amazing. How on earth you get a kid to act like that? I'll never know. I mean, just acting out of his skin, he must be just a natural. Um, so quite a discovery. Really, really beautiful. Hmm. Well, funnily, you know, on the subject of Belfast, because you, you obviously, you watched that on the plane, and this last week I've been watching The Fall, mm. um, which is that crime drama set in Belfast. Oh. 
No, I didn't know about that. So, yeah, Gillian Anderson. It's very, very good. Very oh, I was good. once Just in a room with Gillian Anderson. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was in the green room waiting to go on some chat show or other with her. And uh, I sort of gave her that sort of across the room friendly nod. And she just cut me dead. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, please yourself. (laughs) Sensible girl. (laughs) Maybe her father had warned her off. Shall we go to Belfast? (laughs) Let's go to Belfast. What a great city. Here I come. Sunday, 4th of July. Belfast, the Empire. Woke at the sound of Quinner saying, Lucy, you better get up. We can't do the gig. It's impossible. I thought I'd better get up. Pulled on my trousers and fell out of the bus into a Belfast side street where half a dozen local crew were loitering about waiting for something to happen. Made my way into the gig through a backstage door and into the main room. Sure is beautiful, all wooden railings and a balcony. Lautrec-style paintings, like an old-time music hall or a circus. Huge murals on the wall of pre-Raphaelite women beneath crossed Union flags and scrolls bearing the word Empire. Jeez, you can tell we're in amongst the loyalists. The only problem was that the stage was very small. Eric was having a nervous breakdown at the prospect of getting the band and its equipment on this stage. Well, that wasn't actually the only problem. There was also the fact that it was impossible to bring in our lights, and pretty damned impossible to bring in sound too. There was just nowhere to put anything. The house PA was four flown Martin full-range cabinets. I reckon this is about half the size of the minimum amount of PA we need for a room of this size. There was a nice Midas mixing desk driving the whole thing, though, so we were in with a chance. By the time I'd sized up the situation, most of the rest of the band were in the room. Like me, they'd been panicked out of bed by Quinner's earlier declaration. We were all unanimous that we shouldn't cancel the show and that we should do whatever must be done to make some kind of show happen. There were two mirror balls hanging from the roof, along with one or two moving lights. Steve Finch, our lighting designer, was going to have to program the entire show from scratch. Fortunately for us, he seemed prepared to do it, and did us the favour of not huffing and puffing and making a drama out of it. He just set about getting on with it. Top chap, Steve Finch. Having made the decision to go ahead with the show, the truck was opened and I watched while its contents were emptied into the street. All the lighting and flight cases had to come out to gain access to our backline equipment. Eventually there were so many flight cases in the road that Charlie had to move the tour bus round the corner in order to fit them into the street. Unfortunately, my wallet was on the bus, which had now departed, so I asked Eric to lend me a tenner so I could go and get a coffee. Walked round the corner and found a little cafe, Maggie Mays, where I ordered coffee. A newspaper had been left at my table. 
I use the term newspaper in the loosest sense. All the usual stuff about David Beckham, Wayne Rooney, etc. Surrounded by as many pictures as possible of girls not wearing much. A substitute for news. A substitute for thought. A distraction from a crap life for the masses. Drank a fairly dodgy coffee and then ordered two poached eggs on toast and bacon, which soon arrived with hard yolks. Oh well. Cheers, Maggie. Returned to the gig and Quinn appointed me in the direction of the day rooms which had been booked in the hotel opposite the gig. Rang the doorbell and was greeted by a friendly receptionist called Helen. What an accent they have here in Belfast. Sounds great on a girl but a bit hard on a boy. Anyway, Helen was lovely and pointed me straight up the stairs there to room 417. It turned out to be more or less a vertical four-floor climb. Arrived knackered at room 417 and dropped my toilet bag on the bed. There was a modern high-tech flat LCD TV, which I tuned into some programme about the Olympics. Cycling and boxing. This was followed by a programme about sport relief, a charity raising money for poor kids in various struggling parts of the world. Peru, India, Zambia. Victoria Beckham was digging around on a rubbish dump in Peru, with a little nine-year-old girl who lives on the dump and digs around for glass every day of her life in order to sell it for recycling and scratch a meagre living. Harrowing stuff. Probably did posh the world a good. Probably would have done me the world a good too. I wonder who paid for the flights. I bet she didn't. And I bet she didn't fly economy either. I hope I'm wrong. I showered and cleaned my teeth and changed the dressing on my splintered little finger while the celebs asked us all for money to take the children out of poverty. It's all a drop in the ocean, of course, but one kid taken off a rubbish dump is exactly that. If you read this, send something to Sport Relief, even if it's only a quid. I heard from the local crew that the shops in Belfast open at one o'clock on a Sunday, so I figured if I moseyed into town, I'd arrive on time. I'm in need of more sticky tape for my ailing little finger. I'm suffering from a detached tendon following a bizarre incident with a balloon in Turin. Helen told me that the walk into Belfast city centre was straight up the street there and only about a ten minute walk. I phoned home on the Moby and chatted to Sue as I wandered along the street. All's well back in England and everyone's looking forward to seeing me on Wednesday in Leeds. I was still chatting to Sue as I arrived outside Boots the Chemist, which soon opened its doors to a small throng of early customers. I made my way through the heady aroma of the perfume counters and over towards the medical section, where I eventually found what I was looking for and emerged with micropore tape and finger bandage. Spent another half hour wandering around the city centre trying to find Hugo Boss underwear. No luck. I'll remain commando for another couple of days. Returned to the gig along the long road out towards the botanical gardens area of Belfast and bought an ice cream in a shop full of organic remedies. Arrived back at the gig, having thoroughly run out of things to do and installed myself upon the little balcony at the back of the Empire so I could watch the crew making final preparations for sound check. Inconceivably, all the equipment was on the stage. 
There were no security measures here whatsoever and the front doors of the venue were open to the street, so people kept wandering in and up the stairs to chat. Fair enough, it's not as though I'm here very often and I was looking forward to the gig immensely, simply to sing Easter here. I wrote Easter back in 1987 for the people of Northern Ireland caught up in the Troubles. When I joined Marillion, we finished the song together and recorded it on our first album, the band's fifth, Season's End. We've never played in Northern Ireland, so I've waited 17 years to sing this song here. It was going to be an honour to sing these words to these people. What's particularly uplifting is the fact that the troubles look like they're now all but over, and many of the old rivalries are dissipating as the political process of the new Irish Assembly slowly, slowly bears fruit. Soundcheck was long, as there was much to do, but we eventually got through it. Afterwards, I got back on the bus for a nap before returning to the gig. We changed in an upstairs room full of upturned chairs and tables. There seemed to be a kitchen up here too, and as I changed my trousers, naked from the waist down, a waitress came along the corridor to be greeted by the sight of me bending over. She must have had one hell of a view. She made a small involuntary shriek and disappeared quickly into a side room. It was probably a cupboard. The show wasn't a disappointment. I found an odd ecstasy tablet in the bottom of my toilet bag and I thought, what the hell? So I was flying throughout the gig. During Easter, a guy clambered up on stage, threw his arm around me and sang the song with me down the mic. No one's ever done this before and it seemed perfect to have a Belfast boy singing the song with me. I don't know which side of the sectarian divide he was from and I don't care. There we all were, singing for and celebrating peace. It was an amazing and heartwarming memory and well worth the long, long wait. Didn't really want to go through the charade of leaving the stage and returning for encores as it was almost impossible to get on and off stage anyway. So we just kept going till we ran out of music. Marvellous. Thank you to all who showed up and may the Lord in his mercy be kind to Belfast. And we're back. <laughs> you got your hockey puck there, eh? You got your, I can't do it. You got your hockey puck, you got your hockey puck there, eh? They say a eh, Canadians on the on the end of every, everything. So it's all, uh, you know, straight down. Well, I can't do it. <laughs> back to Belfast then. <laughs> straight down the street there. Yeah, that's a sort of Irish Canadian. Um, sorry, carry on. Yeah, yeah. Don't annoy the Irish Canadians. <laughs> I read, I read the diary last week. So it's a while, but I seem to recall there was that it wasn't the venue wasn't big enough. That's right. That's right. We were all we, um, we were all turfed out of bed by the the sound of Quinn trying tr- trying to get Lucy. Wake Lucy up to say, "What are we going to do? Because we can't play this gig." 
And uh, that that's going to get a band out of bed sharpish. We all piled out of bed to try and find out what the problem was. And it was very small. And there was, um, there was like, it was one of those gigs that had like a railing around the stage, a, mm. a, a wooden railing, like a banister, probably, you know, to, to mark some kind of division between the public and the artist. Um, but, but because there was a railing, it made it impossible to sort of work outside of that space. And we couldn't get all the equipment anywhere like on stage. So we had to either cancel the show or find a way to do the show with a lot less gear. Um, the lights wouldn't fit in the building. They couldn't get any other lighting trusses in because the ceiling was too low. Um, you know, we, and we'd got an arctic full of lights, none of which we could use. Um, so it was quite a brain teaser and involved quite a lot of work, especially from, I think, as I mentioned, Stevie Finch, who was doing the lights, had to completely reprogram the show. So it was a bit of a, uh, a hard day for the crew. It wasn't a hard day for me. I just did what I usually do and hung about in cafes and wandered about Boots the Chemist. But... Um, I think it was complex for the crew, and um, but it was a great. I mean, it was a great night. I still have, have memories of singing, singing Easter, and every, everybody in the crowd singing it. And it was just so moving, um, really moving. I'd waited a long time to sing that song in in that city. The first time I went to Belfast was probably 2006. Right. And I remember walking from the hotel and wandering into an area uh, where there were still murals everywhere, the, the mm. curbstones were still painted, um, and feeling an edge, you know, even then feeling an edge and, and feeling, you know, mm. slightly slightly troubled by where I'd wandered into as if I didn't really understand where I was or you know, what the significance was of the area I was in. Yeah. Um, and and it's amazing that, you know, I say 2006, you, you know, it, probably not surprising, it still felt a little bit like that at that, that point in time. But it's, it's still got that feeling, Belfast, hasn't it? Yeah, I went there with the Europeans in the 80s and there were still turnstiles on the streets and, you know, on the pavements um, to get from one, one end of a road to another. Um, and yet the atmosphere in the place, it was one of the friendliest cities I'd ever been to. People would, would just chat mm. to one another. Complete strangers would just talk to one another as they walked down the street in a way that you'd never see in London. Um, you talk to someone in London in the street, you know, and they, they look at you as though you're either going to kill them or try and sell them something. Um, but in Belfast it felt more like a village. Um, it really did feel like a village. Everybody was so friendly to each other, and as well as to strangers. And when all you, when all your terms of reference for the city were based on the the six o'clock news, you were expecting something much, much. You know, I was expecting something much edgier than I witnessed. But, yeah, for sure, there was still all the, the, the murals and the slogans and the, you were very, very conscious of the 
the separation of the of the communities um and the you know in the 80s it wasn't even history it was still going on yeah and there was always a chance i guess that you'd witness something go bang or something burst into flames um but my experience of of the city wasn't that it was it, it was a really warm place and i think that's probably what led me to to write easter um as a as a love song for the people of of of, of both sides of of the um the, the the divide you know both religions north and south everything it's just a, it's just a love song for for ireland um and 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 the, and the richness of its culture and the beauty of its people you know the lyricism the 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 um history of of poetry and literature that's come out of Ireland and just just the, the Irish spirit which is unlike any other spirit on earth you know just, just the, the 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 way the way those the way the Irish can just shoot the breeze with each other um you know it's a privilege to be involved in a in a in such a conversation you know shooting the crack um they they're just they're just different and so it's it's tragic that they that the ordinary people had to put up with with such such a lot of bullshit that was that had as much to do with gangsterism as it did with religion really it was all mixed up with extortion and um keeping a kind of pipeline of money flowing in a certain direction you know there was a lot of money coming in from america um to help the struggle from from Amer- from well-meaning Americans who'd put a few dollars in a in a tin on the street, but it wasn't really what it was doing. It was it was providing an income stream for certain people to to drive certain very nice cars, while sending young men with romantic notions out to do their dirty work. I think there was an element of that. Mm. It, it- what you just said there, I mean, I was very struck when I was, the, you know, I went out for a walk on that first night and was very struck by the imagery and by uh, and, and by the actual scars, um, you know, at the, around the place itself. But to your point, without talking to the people, when you spoke to the people, you're right, it's totally different. Uh, and the community and the people couldn't be nicer, but you were very conscious of the fact that that the there was a, a um you know yes it was history to a certain extent but it was still very real and it was still in the in the you know in the same way it must have been walking through berlin five ten years after the war it would still have been very much there and the place will have been fresh with it yeah um and it, and it felt that way it, you, you know you'd walk into i would, the first night i was there i stayed in holly inn and remember it being just a normal hotel i could have been in any city in in the country and then wandered off piste, and suddenly I'm very much in Belfast. Mm. But I, but you know, I've met, I've, I've, I've met and been around um, people who I know who, you, you know, Protestant boys who married Catholic girls during those days, and that wasn't as weird as you'd think. It was actually quite commonplace, and so that the. the 
there weren't those levels of hatred that you 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 think that perhaps existed across the board if all you ever saw was the six o'clock news. You know, there's always so much more to real life than the media represents. Um, seems a reasonable place to let you crack on with the rest of the day. What have you got planned then? Today, um, well, as I said, I'm going to go find go find a hairdresser's. Um, see see if I can get my hair sorted out because it's looking a bit crap. Um, and then I'm gonna I've got Mike Hunter's new new stereo mix of Seasons End for the Seasons End um, re-release. You know the the Warner Brothers one that's forthcoming. Um, I've already heard heard it to to sort of give feedback. It sounds great. Uh, there were a couple of little things needed doing. I mean, I've actually sung. It was strange. Last week, I was on a microphone last week singing backing vocals on uh, Berlin and putting a backing vocal on the space on the Season's End album, which was well weird, you know, 30, 33 years later. Um because they've gone and um, all the multi-tracks that Warner Brothers had um, kind of, there's a, there are things missing that are on the record and aren't on any of the multi-tracks and I'm not entirely sure where they went but Mike, um, you know, Mike scoured the, um, the tape stores of, of EMI and Warner's and that, that, he's got everything that they had but there were bits missing, and there was just a couple of little backing vocals, quite subtle things, um, in uh, in the verse of Berlin and in the verse of the space that weren't there, and so I re-sang them, and I don't think you'll notice because they're they're very subtle, but it's quite interesting that there will be elements of this re-release that that were recorded in 2022, whilst the rest of it was recorded in 1989. I think that's really nice, actually. Yeah, there's there's a few, there's a couple of things <laughs> that are brand new, <laughs> like little new ghosts in amongst it. I think that's really nice. Right, well, good luck with the weekend. Thank you, thank you very much. Oh yeah, I'm just going to mooch around Montreal and you know get to know the place, re- reacquaint myself. With the, oh, the jazz festival's on as well, so that should be quite interesting. It'll be quite vibrant on the street, I think. And Friday is Canada Day, which, if you're listening to this podcast and you're purple, is today. Today is Canada Day. So the, the first night of the weekend will be on Canada Day. Canada, it's hard to say that, isn't it? Canada Day. Canada Day. Quite rhythmical. <laughs> Maybe you ought to do the Canadian National Anthem as the Croomcast. <laughs> what's, what's it like, the Canadian? How does it go? I haven't got a clue. Canada Day, 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 Canada Day. Yeah. Da-da-da-da. One, two, three, four. Four syllables. Bye. Canada Day, Canada Day, Canada Day, Canada Day, Canada Day.
Canada Day, Canada Day, Canada Day today. Thank you, Stephen Wicks. Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.